Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest, a true pioneer in his very specialist part of Australia's beef industry. He's seen it all, the ups, the downs, the highlights, the lowlights, where it looked at one stage the light might get turned out completely and forever. Live exporter and veterinarian for over 50 years, Dr. Richard Trevitt. Welcome. You are on the grill for Beef Central. Thanks, Kerry. Do you remember those lowlights, the, the export ban in 2011? Well, we... We remember it very well. It was pretty frightening, really. We didn't know whether we had a business there for a while. Exactly. But uh, sanity prevailed, and uh, we're back back in business again. Yeah, they were awful times. We'll get back to that uh, later on in our podcast uh, this afternoon. Richard, first, your background. Born and reared on a wool property in the western Darling Downs of Queensland? Yes, uh, I grew up at a, a little village. Well, it wasn't a village. It was a rail siding, Hannaford. Uh, grew up there, born in 1943, went to boarding school when I was nine, nine years at boarding school and then uh, five years at University of Queensland doing veterinary science. Yeah, so getting back to that, that little, was the beginning. Yeah, getting back to that little country town, it was Hannaford or the, yes. or the rail siding as you call it. Uh, that sort of Brigalow scrub melon hole country, it was pretty tough, but you, you ran some pretty good sheep there, didn't you? At the, mo- at the time it was mostly sheep country. Yeah, well, look, it was it was Brigalow uh, when Dad got the block in the late thirties. Uh, it was just a big Brigalow scrub from one end to the other. Uh, got it cleared. Joe Bioki Peterson uh, helped us do that with his uh, his big D nines. And uh, once you got it, once you got it cleared and got some pasture on it, it it grew very fine wool because it was such a good country. And and Brigalow's a legume. And for that reason, uh, we grew fine wool. And Luckily, yeah, in the fifties. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so you had about only three and a half thousand sheep, which is small by sheep numbers, but it was fine wool. And of course, in the 50, early fifties, the, the wool boom. E- exactly. So now, is this where you met an old mate, or did you meet him at uh, at Churchy, a, a guy you've been involved with in business for most of your life and on the football field as well, on opposite sides usually, but uh, certainly a mate from a long, long time ago, and we're referring to the one and only David Crombie. Yeah, look, uh, David Crombie and I, luckily, uh, at a very young age, went to Churchy. Uh, that's where I met David. I think we were about, about 10 or 11 uh, when we first met one another, and uh, look, I've had an unbelievable friendship with David for a long time, starting then. And uh, I still get to have a game of golf with him every six or eight weeks. So uh, it's uh, it's been an amazing uh, ride, actually, with David. That's amazing. It's 60-plus years. It's just extraordinary. Now, Church in Brisbane, that's where your footballing talents really emerged. And was David playing there or he was at another school? No, no, no. David, David was at Churchy and... Uh, was he, a, he uh, was he the hooker then, or, or did he? Yeah, get, he yeah. was the hooker. But very sadly, in our final year, nineteen sixty-one, uh, David broke his arm in a trial match before the before the uh, season started, and I think he got the last game in out of the seven or eight you, you play. So uh, he missed most of that game. But he then went on to bigger and better things when he went to university. Yes, and uh, but you were more than a handy player, and so is David, mind you. Uh, 
you played for Queensland at number 10, the 5'8 position, but there was a young bloke from New South Wales who had that position in the national team. He didn't keep you out of the team completely, but he certainly kept you out of your favourite position. Yeah, well, look, you're referring to Phil Hawthorne, obviously, and he he was one of the most extraordinary footballers we've, we've, we've ever had. Phil Hawthorne, fully fit in his footy gear, was 69 kilograms when I was playing with him. Uh, That's remarkable. Played lots of games for Australia, but you'll probably recall uh, he went to rugby league. Yes. Uh, wasn't much bigger, and I think he even captained Australia in rugby league. He, he, did he, he was an extraordinary fellow, but uh, his uh, life was cut short by a brain tumour yeah. a long time ago. But anyway, he's a, a great player. Wonderful footballer. But uh, I just, can we go back to those weights? He was 69 kilos playing 5'8 for Australia in rugby. And you were exactly. playing. You were, and you played two tests for Australia against the mighty Brisbane Lions in 1963. And you were only seventy something kilos, seventy two, seventy three kilos, weren't you? Uh, look, I, I'm not sure what I was, but it was certainly in the seventies. Yeah. But uh, lots of fun. Now, perhaps the worst injury an athlete can suffer, especially an accelerating athlete, you snapped your Achilles tendon, and that brought your football career at the time to a, a stop for quite some time. You did get back, but your footy days were numbered then, weren't they? Yeah, look, that was the end of... Uh, I think I had a couple of games for Queensland uh, once I got over that, but uh, that was it. But the other thing is I just graduated in veterinary science yeah. and I had to I had to work. You did, there wasn't much money in, in rugby in those days, <laughs> so uh, I, I had to go was, to work. I remember there was nil, yes. Uh, so you get together with Bill Gunn Jr. then after vet science school and... and you got out to, where did you end up at Warwick? Yeah, well, look, uh, immediately out of university, uh, I went and worked for a wonderful veterinary practice in Warwick, uh, run by Sid Miller, Scott McClellan and Ken Wells. They had a practice that worked all over Australia in cattle and sheep, and I was just enormously lucky to uh, spend the first sort of couple of years of uh, having graduated uh, in that practice. And, and Bill Gunn Jr. Where did uh, that's that's where Gunn Rural Management started. How did how did your connection come about? Well, look, yeah, I was at school with Bill. Bill was a very good rugby player as well. Uh, played for the Reds, uh, but being school friends, he was a year ahead of me. But once Bill got involved with his father in the Northern Territory, he uh, talked to his old schoolmates and he talked to David Crombie first, who first joined with GRM, and then. Uh, uh, on the 1st of April 1968, I came on board. Now, now, the move into live exports, initially at least, came about almost by accident. There was a meeting in a lift somewhere? That... Look, in 1972, I went with DRM to the Sudan and I was returning from there, stopped over in Kuala Lumpur, and I ran into my old uh, mate from veterinary school, Vincent Lee, who was the chief veterinary officer in Sabah, Malaysia at the time, and... Uh, he said to me, look, Richard, uh, the Chief Minister wants to get some Brahmin heifers. He said, we had a go with McTaggart's and uh, the cattle weren't very good. He said, do you think you can send us a good shipment? And having never exported cattle in our lives before, I said, Vincent, not a problem. We can do it. <laughs> that's, that's confidence, not a problem. Doug McTaggart couldn't do it, but you could. Exactly. Now, but, but moving on and jumping a few steps here, the biggest influence in the live trade was the introduction and growth of Brahmin cattle into the Northern Territory and really across the 
top of Australia. That was extraordinary. That that was the needle that the live export trade needed. Yeah, look, uh, it was good to be involved because, you know, being with Sir William up in the Territory in the old days when most of the cattle up there were short uh, we were very involved uh, with him in getting Brahman cattle into the, into the cattle in the Territory. Out of that, uh, you know, we got wonderful crossbred uh, Brahman heifers that eventually had enough Brahman content to be ideal for uh, exporting to uh, places like Indonesia. Yeah, I'm, su- I'm surprised that the volume of English breeds that were uh, evident across the north, and they stayed there and stayed there for some considerable time, didn't they? Correct. What, what was there, a resentment or an objection to the Brahmins, was there? Oh, look, I, I think it, it probably got a bit down to, to sort of management and how long it had been in place and how progressive the management was. But, you know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the AA company, we, GRM, we actually bought a Vern, Urie and Argyle from the AA company, I think, in the early 80s. And uh, they had a total shorthorn herd on those properties when we bought those places. That was then. I think that had a little bit to do with a the manager they had there, Lloyd Fogarty, who was a dyed-in-the-wool short-on man. But yeah. anyway, that's probably the reason. I think once the most of the producers got to be fully aware of the benefits of having those Bosindicus cattle across there, and it just multiplied very quickly then. It took off. Yeah, look, it, it did. But another thing in tandem with it was supplementary feed, which when I first went to the Territory uh, in the late 60s, nobody said supplementary feed. And... You know, Sir William Gunn was an amazing man, but he pioneered supplementary feed in the Northern Territory. He he got rumavite. He bought the rumavite base from South Africa. He he did that, and we started producing rumavite at the 18-mile rice mill near Darwin, and that was the start of supplementary feeding in the Northern Territory. Rumavite is a lick block of some sort, is it? Yeah, Rumavite is a lick block. Its base is EC feed. It was developed in South Africa, actually, and uh, brought to Australia by Jim Arbuckle, who was working for, for Sir William. He was an old DPI cattle nutritionist, and uh, from there, that's where the supplementary feeding in the Territory uh, started. Now, how did uh, Kerry Packer get involved with uh, with GRM? Was that was he associated with Kenny Warner before, or did that uh, did it happen at the same time? No, look, we became associated there. Ken, as you would be aware, was uh, was uh, Kerry's man up in the territory. Uh, we at that stage, when I say we, David Crombie, John Down, and myself, and Wayne Reed, we uh, we owned uh, Avern, Uri, and Argyle, and Mountain Valley actually, and. Uh, Ken came to us one day and said, look, Mr. Packer wants to expand his uh, Northern Territory cattle interests. Would you be interested in selling? And uh, we all had our houses on the line and uh, young families growing up, and uh, we thought we'd take a bit of risk out of that. So we agreed to uh, sell the businesses and the properties to Kerry. Was he a tough boss? Oh, no, look, he, he was involved. I can still remember the day we bought the place and he said, well, you know, we agreed. And he said, well, thanks, boys. He said, uh, go out there and go to work. My only instruction is don't embarrass me. Wow. That's... And that, that was it. From there, we, we went to work for Kerry. Time for a break from uh, On The Grill. Back in a moment after this quick message from our sponsor. 
This podcast is brought to you by CompuDose, a proven way to maximise growth rates in grass-fed cattle. CompuDose allows you to target and achieve specifications for most major markets, including MSA grading and feedlots. Contact Alanco and find out how CompuDose can grow your beef operation. Results may vary depending on nutrition. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're on the grill uh, with Beef Central. Our guest today, livestock export pioneer, Dr. Richard Trivett. So you expanded the business. You're exporting to Indonesia, of course, um, picking a few other countries here, Vietnam, Philippines, South Korea, and uh, a very handy trade to Turkey and especially Israel for cattle. And, of course, there was the sheep business as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, look, the, the sheep business was interesting. Actually, give Ke- Kerry you. I think he probably got us into the sheep trade. He, he said to us, he said, look, I've got a really good mate. He's, he's the Crown Prince of Jordan. I play polo with him uh, over in the UK. He said, I'd like you to set up a, a sheep project in Jordan uh, with him. And uh, we went over there and uh, with a, a wonderful uh a stockman from Western Australia, Jimmy Stewart. We went to uh, to Jordan, built a hundred and twenty thousand head sheep feedlot, and started exporting uh, sheep into uh, into Jordan. Well, so that, that was Kerry's that doing. Is that the one near Petra? Uh, yeah, very close to Petra, and, and it still exists. I, I, I suspect. Yes, it, yeah. it still exists. We we sold out to a very uh, powerful sheep trading company over there and uh, they're still operating it. Yeah. Those episodes of animal cruelty on that program, there were suggestions that this wasn't the case, that it didn't matter in the end, that you had to answer and the live trade changed uh, forever after that. Yeah, look, I don't think there's any doubt about it now. But the live trade, the animal welfare considerations in the live trade now are very well taken care of and anybody can come, they can go on ship, they can go to the countries that the, the exporters are delivering to and you'll see some uh, very, very good attention to detail in, in animal welfare in, in virtually all of those instances. Yeah, it was resolved with the SCAS in, in place and essentially supply chain assurances re animal welfare. The trade had to live with this and so too did the buyers of Australian cattle up in Asia. Well, look, that, that is quite an extraordinary thing. But amazingly, uh, the importers of our live animals have, have, have taken it on board. And, and to go to Indonesia and to go into uh, to Vietnam and, and places like that and, and see how they've embraced SCAF and uh, the imposition from the Australian government is quite amazing. And we weren't too happy at the time, but I think we all, in hindsight, agree now that it was the best thing that could have happened. Did your boss, Mr Packer, have a view or offer any suggestions on what might happen or what might be the best to do? No, look, uh, we, we he wasn't involved with the government in, in any of our activities. He had plenty of involvement with them in other areas, but uh, uh, Kerry just left it to us and, as he said, don't embarrass me. So uh, would you be surprised to know that that case that came out of the live export decision by the Minister Ludwig and the subsequent court case and the subsequent case in the High Court, would you be surprised to know the court case is still, the, the, the decision or the result of the decision is still before the Federal Cabinet as I speak today? 
Yeah, look, we're very aware of that, but but the only thing that's outstanding at the moment, I think, is the is the level of compensation that the government pays, and uh, you know there is a very significant amount involved there, and uh, people that were heavily involved in exporting at the time that the ban was put on uh, are due uh, for for some level of remuneration, I think, ultimately. But uh, this government obviously is is uh, very reticent. <laughs> to proceed with a final settlement, but I guess one day it'll happen. I'm told that the amount sitting there at the moment is around $2 billion, and it's accruing interest to the rate of 7% a year. You, you know more than I do about that, Kerry, but uh, anyway, look, uh, one day there might be a payday. Well, it's 12 years. It just seems an extraordinary amount of time. And I have to mention, that case came about with the help of the <clears throat> excuse me, Farmers Fighting Fund. Is, it, is that the case? Well, look, I think the Farmers Fighting Fund, as I understand it, supported, and their names escape me at the moment, but large producers in the Northern Territory, I think they might have owned, uh, no, it wasn't Rosewood, but a property up there in the in the north uh, west of the Northern Territory. And uh, I think we all joined in when they decided to take the government on. Look, I've been reminded here of the another sheep deal you did with Algeria. Uh, the deals with Algeria, which came sort of out of the blue, you had done nothing with them before, but it became a substantial market almost overnight. Yeah, look, uh, we were involved, you know, talking about getting involved with the sheep trade, which we have. Uh, we were involved in, in exporting sheep at the time, and uh, a gentleman uh, of Algerian background who lived in Paris turned up in Brisbane one day and said that the uh, Algerian government wanted to import uh, live sheep and they might even uh, want to get a million sheep a year from us and we were disbelieving in the initial conversation but lo and behold uh, and I, look I can't remember when it was but it might have been the late 80s or the early 90s we actually did export a million sheep to Algeria in one year so uh, it was uh, a very significant uh, undertaking certainly on our part and, and a number of shiploads of mutton as well uh, yes, uh, we we uh, we put uh, we put uh, look. I can't remember how many tons, but it was in the thousands of tons of mutton, uh, frozen mutton, in there as well. So it was uh, ended up being a very good contact. Richard, looking back, how many countries have you personally visited selling livestock from Australia? Oh, look, Kerry, I I can't remember, but I think it'd have to be around twenty. Uh, you know, we we got to some uh, fairly amazing places. You know, one place that I really enjoyed visiting and, and we supplied a lot of cattle to is Pakistan. You talk to people about going to Pakistan and uh, they sort of wonder whether you, you, you're sane or not. But it, it's an amazing country and uh, we've, we've done a lot of business there. South America, Peru, we put a couple of shiploads of, of Corridale breeding ewes in, into Peru. That was an enormously interesting exercise. So, uh, look, uh, we, we've been to a lot of continents and a lot of different countries. Mexico would have been a bit of a challenge as well? Yeah, well, look, Mexico, uh, quite interestingly, that came out, out of a, an aid, a government aid project, and it was only, uh, there were three of us went over, Sid Miller, I've talked about Sid, but he was a wonderful sheep veterinarian. Helen Newton-Turner, who was a very renowned uh, geneticist in the sheep industry. The three of us went to Mexico, I think, in the 
late 70s or early 80s and uh, talk to them about their sheep industry there. Uh, they've got some amazing country up in their, their high country where they can grow fine wool. And uh, we ended up putting, look, I can't remember, but it was somewhere between 70 and 80,000 Corridale breeding ewes uh, in there as well. Time for a break from uh, On The Grill. Back in a moment after this quick message from our sponsor. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. You're on The Grill uh, with Beef Central. Our guest today, livestock export pioneer, Dr. Richard Trivett. Is it true that you once had a deal to export a plane load of goats out of Australia and you couldn't find any goats, so you filled the plane up with sheep? Not- I've heard that story before. <laughs> Uh, I, I wouldn't like to claim it at the moment because uh, it would probably demonstrate uh, some irresponsibility on my part. But, uh, but so, it, somebody thinks that somebody thinks that happened. But it's but the people that involved they, they remained very good customers for many years to come. Yeah, they they, they did, and uh, we, we sent goats, but ended, they ended up uh, discovering that they needed a few cattle as well, which oh, was right, good. Okay. Now, Rick, what the future of the live trade? How do you see it? Well, look, I, I'm confident that, that it'll be sustained in the end. Uh, you may be aware we're going through a process in, uh, in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, that's been another amazing country. We've exported an enormous number of sheep and cattle from. But the New Zealand government are stopping us exporting uh, cattle by ship there in the next couple of months, I think, or certainly this year sometime. An extraordinary decision on our part. But uh, anyway, and, and looking that we're looking to somehow or other get it overturned. But we can continue to fly stock out of New Zealand. But uh, thankfully, the Australian governments of, of both persuasions have seen fit to continue to support uh, our trade. And, and look, we're very encouraged with our, with our government at the moment and, uh, and their response. I know they're talking about concerns about sheep exports out of Western Australia. Uh, and they'll no doubt sort that issue out with the Premier of Western Australia, who's not happy about it. But uh, certainly on the cattle front, uh, the the government here now is being very supportive of, of what we're doing. Yes, and the demand for, for protein from the north especially seems um, unending. Uh, that's That's the bright spot ahead, isn't it? Well, look, yeah, that, that, that is. But, you know, the other thing that we concentrate on more than sort of too many other exporters out of Australia is breeding cattle. And, uh, you know, the the amazing numbers of, of dairy heifers that we've put into China over the last 10 or 12 years or might be 15 years is is extraordinary and it's it's continuing and, and providing amazing amounts of milk uh, for, for the children of China. So, look, 
breeding cattle, I think, will uh, is a very significant focus for us, and uh, hopefully that'll be sustained into the future. Richard Trevitt, Wallaby livestock pioneer, and still going strong. Richard, great to have you on the grill for Beef Central. Kerry, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenko Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group. Mm-hmm.